Hello and welcome to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and streaming live to CHD TV and Twitter and Facebook as long as they're going to let us. It's interesting days. We'll see what happens. Uh, we are in a revolution, a wonderful, peaceful health revolution, a medical revolution. Um, things are getting really bumpy, but I believe if we all pull together and we stay strong and we stay tenacious and we, we don't let go of the, the vision of a, of a healthy, uh, healthy society, healthy families, healthy children in, in all areas of health, if we just don't let go of the beauty of that belief and the truth of that belief, that we will succeed. Um, it will take all of us working together to get there. But, you know, I'm a hopeless op optimist. Those of you watching today, um, seeing the video of me here, and I'll tell on the radio, I I'm wearing a particular shirt that I kind of wanted to point out to people. It kind of does this funny thing where it wrinkles weird. And I, um, but I, it's it's one of my favorite shirts now to occasionally wear because the first time I wore it where a lot of people saw it was way back in 2018 when I was fairly new at doing this journey of uh, speaking in public and, um, and uh, kind of speaking up to powers that be. And it was in Washington State at a Board of Health meeting that was being held at the Capitol. And I brought up to the Board of Health the fact that the immunization manager, Michelle Roberts at the time, uh, belonged to an organization called the Association of Immunization Managers. And I laid out the, um, the tangle, the fabric of literally thousands of entities and agencies all networked together, including all public health departments that had one goal, and one goal alone, and that was to increase vaccination uptake. And not one of these entities or agencies or nonprofits ever mentioned adverse reactions or individual susceptibility to adverse reactions or any other method of preventing disease. It was just the, it was massive. And so I called them out, brought that up, and I was just a mama bear. I'm still just a mama bear, right? And Somebody, it, it was on TVW, somebody took a clip and it went viral. It got translated into a couple of languages and went around the world. And just like, look at a mom is speaking truth to power. And um, so I remember that day, every time I put on the shirt, I just think about how nervous I was and yet how I needed to speak truth and I needed to confront them with what they were doing and, and let the world know what we were up against. And this is, three years before uh, 2018, so two, two and a half years before COVID and all that we experienced, it, it described the, the foundation of where we really were. We already had a nation, a world that was captured and integrated by this whole medical, pharmaceutical, industrial complex. And that's why these dangerous things have been allowed to happen. And we're now revealing it. We're shining the spotlight on it. Um, so today we've got some we've got some important topics. Um, in the first hour, first, I need to say that the views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of KKNW or CHD. 
Um, and in this first hour, we're going to be talking about a subject that can be very difficult at times to talk about, but it needs to be talked about. In fact, I believe in societies where we are made to feel uncomfortable about subjects are the very things that we do need to figure out how to talk about because otherwise uh, people get hurt. And uh, there's a lot of subjects that were made to feel that you're gonna be labeled and attacked if you dare go there. Well, we're gonna dare go there um, because children's lives, um, people's lives are at stake, the quality of, of their lives. So we're gonna be very respectful um, when we bring in this uh, topic, but we're also you know, gonna be speaking some facts. So if you've got young ears here, we're not gonna get into any uh, too many um, details that might be awkward for young ears, but if you do have young ears listening, um, we're gonna be talking about um, transgender, and some litigation having to do with an individual um, who had some of the transgender surgery. So if this is a comfortable, uncomfortable subject for you or for somebody you're with right now, um, maybe tune out to the second hour and then come back in the second hour of the show where we're going to have Carl Kanthak on and he's going to be talking about data, which is very neutral. Um, but uh, okay, so with that said, um, I'm going to go ahead and, and bring on Daniel Watkins. So Daniel Watkins is in his 30th year of practicing law. He's licensed in California and Nevada, and he has litigated thousands of cases in the areas of medical and dental malpractice, employment law, business litigation, and subrogation, which I don't know what it is. I'll ask Daniel what that is. Um, Dan served 14 years in the U.S. Army Reserve and California Army National Guard as both a non-commissioned and commissioned officer. Through his affiliation with the Pacific Justice Institute, PGI, and we know them well, we, we play a little uh, public service announcements for PGI on this show, and the Alliance Defending Freedom, Dan has also litigated civil rights matters revolving primarily around religious liberties. And, you know, in the past few years, we have seen religious liberties absolutely trampled. I don't understand it. Um, uh, Dan, I'm going to tell you a, a story about that after I get through your great bio here. So with the uh, radical attack on constitutional principles and human rights that we are seeing, Dan has shifted gears in the focus of his practice, and he is now representing thousands of individuals across the state of California who lost their jobs after requesting a religious exemption to COVID-19, and I say, quote unquote, vaccine mandates. Uh, Dan is currently representing individuals exploited and victimized by healthcare facilities and professionals related to gender transition treatment techniques. Most recently, Dan filed three lawsuits against the healthcare facilities and professionals for the use of remdesivir to treat COVID-19 patients. So he's covering a whole lot of really important subjects. Uh, Dan has found more gratification working on these issues of human and civil rights over the past year than the entire preceding 29 years combined. Well, bless your heart, as they say here in Tennessee. Daniel Watkins, welcome to an Informed Life Radio. Thank you, Bernadette. I'm uh, really honored to be here. And, and thank you so much for giving me a chance to inform your viewers and listeners about what we're doing and bring some awareness to some of the craziness that's going on in this country relative to religious liberties, like you talked about. 
the medical tyranny that we're seeing exacted on people. And, and uh, I just appreciate a chance to be able to speak and in particular to talk about Richard uh, and what he's gone through and how he is just an absolute wonderful individual who's had his life ripped from him, literally. Um, and so I appreciate the chance to be here. You bet. You bet. So your bio brought up a couple of things I want to um, ask you just real quick. What is a subrogation? It's uh, basically it's insurance work. So okay. it's, it's involved. The, the reason it's important, I think, at least in my experience, is that we deal a lot with expert witnesses uh, related to engineering and fire and things like that. But that experience transfers very well into what I'm doing as well with the medical community and the remdesivir cases, for example. Uh, it transfers well into the, the uh, religious liberty cases on the mandates because we have experts, toxicologists and the like. So um, the nice part about that experience is it brings me in contact with experts of varying types and you learn a different skill set when you deal with experts all the time. You bring so much experience to what you're doing. It is such a gift. And I'm, you know, I'm such a firm believer in following your passion. And I'm glad that your life has brought you to this place where you're able to take on these cases with the experience that you have. Um, I want to, um, I need to go find it later on the video. I got to remember to do it so I can play it to the audiences. But in 2019 in Washington State, which is where I'm from, and this, this show is hosted by the great people of Washington State who belong to um, um, Informed Choice Washington. So thank you for your donations. Please keep them coming in to keep free speech on the air. Um, but in 2019, after a bill passed that removed the personal exemption to the MMR, so parents in Washington State still have medical exemption to MMR, as well as the religious exemption. So there was a Board of Health meeting after this law passed. And I remember in particular, so we've got the Secretary of Health was there at the Board of Health. And also present at this meeting was the, um, the head of the immunization department. And a doctor asked a question. He because he now knew he was going to be asked to sign religious exemptions and usually had been doing the personal exemptions. And he said, now, how is it I'm supposed to evaluate whether somebody honestly has a religious conviction or if they're just trying to get out of getting a shot, right? And so the Secretary of Health said, you, the law does not require you to judge anybody's religion. The, the law just says that a parent has to get a risk-benefit consultation from a doctor. And you are required to... Um, to just state, I gave them a risk-benefit consultation. It has nothing to do with whether what kind of exemption they're choosing, and you are not supposed to evaluate their religious conviction. And then the uh, immunization manager stood up and said, that's absolutely correct. In fact, we would be in serious legal trouble if we try to play judge and jury to somebody's religious convictions. We cannot do that. If you claim a religious exemption, we have to accept it. This was in 2019. And then suddenly with COVID, we've got Governor of Washington, Governor Inslee, we've got through public records request, him sending an email telling them at the state level, I want you to draft religious exemption requirements that are so extensive and intimidating, basically. Now, don't quote me, that's not exact words, but it makes it very difficult to get. And so suddenly they were able, they were trying to tell you that you had to prove your religion. 
Now, how did they get it? They did this in every state and all these employers when just months before they were afraid to do such a thing. You know, this, it was to me just absolutely crazy. How, Daniel, how can we get back our God-given right to religious objections to medical interventions when we, I mean, it already exists. We have this right, but it's not being honored. Well, that's a big question, but I, I will tell you that I have observed a very similar uh, practice here in California. And I think personally that it derives from an evil, uh, dark place. Mm -hmm. The people who are exacting these types of requirements and changing the law through their practice, I'll get into some specifics in a second, um, really are trying to dismantle religion uh, as any type of foundational principle or place in America. And you do it by attacking through this mandate. And um, the law is pretty clear when it comes to religious exemptions that an employer is to presume that there is a sincerity of belief. And as long as the belief is religious in nature, and there are some definitions to that, Mm -hmm. um, then it is to be accepted. What we have seen, uh, something similar to what you heard in Washington throughout California, and probably the greatest violator of this was Kaiser. Uh, They sent questions, specific questions, targeting all sorts of uh, really more ideological and scientific things as opposed to theological things, but mm-hmm. really trick questions. And they spent considerable effort. On some occasions, we had four and five iterations of questions sent to our clients to explain and justify how their religious obje- uh, position was in uh, conflict with the mandate or with the shot, clearly in violation of the law. And they... Mm-hmm. They did it. We have Los Angeles Unified School District, very much the same, trying to pick apart the religious basis for the objection to the shot. And it's really actually very simple and super fundamental, particularly with respect to the use or testing and development of these shots from abortive fetal cell lines. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it could be any more fundamentally spiritual to say that that was the taking of a life. I'm not going to benefit from the taking of a life. It's pretty simple yeah. and very basic spiritually, but boy, they have attacked and attacked and attacked. And then, so how do we get back by filing these lawsuits, by encouraging my clients to wear their spirituality on their sleeve, to ex- exercise their faith and act in faith, share who they are, and no longer sit back in some closet and say, I can't be who I am spiritually because I'm going to be perceived as intolerant. I'm going to be attacked like mm-hmm. we see all over the place today. Yeah. People have to be bold to stand up and go forward with their faith. And in shining that light, other people will find courage. And I think that's how we take it back, at least in part. Yeah. And, you know, my and own religious objection to not only the mRNA shots, but this, at this stage of my research of vaccine products, this is my own personal stance. My own religious outlook, my spiritual outlook of how to behave in the world. I do not believe in self-harm and I don't believe in harming others. I don't believe in harming my children and I don't believe in allowing 
coercion or other influences to force me to make a decision that I know might be harmful. So when I know exposure to a medical intervention, such as an mRNA vaccine or in any of the other shots at this point, has the potential to do harm, to me, it's a sin to make that choice because I want to keep a job, because I want to travel, because I want my child to go to that school, because I don't want to be bullied, because I want to be the same as everybody. No, no. To me, it's fundamental. And I don't care what's in it, right? I mean, this could just be, you know, I mean, it's if I if I perceive this to be the wrong way to go, if I believe that, um, that um, my immune system, as, as God has designed it, if fully properly supported, is the right way to interact with the microbial world. That's my religious belief. I, that's who I am as an individual. And, you know, they can't play judge or jury. It's, it's not because of one ingredient. It's just even the whole concept of this stage. Um, so anyway, um, well, that's so, a really good point. And I think just if we just take it for just real quick and look at the idea that for many people, their body is a temple. It's yeah. created for the Holy Spirit to live in. And you want to take care of it, just like you said. You don't want to harm it. And it's interesting because it's really the information that came out in this run up for the shot. And everybody was starting to look into things and things were leaking. For example, mRNA technology, it actually changes your genetic makeup. Well, that changes who we are as a creation of God. And it was the science that started to support the idea that these shots violated spiritual and you know, fundamental religious values. And, and, and that's the hard part, I think, for the other side. And so we go back to how do we keep religion you know, in the front and how do we make sure that it's still given the respect that it deserves? demand information going forward when these types of things come out. We're not doing this shot until we see the studies. We're not doing this shot until we see what kind of side effects come from this. Oh, you mean it changes who I am? Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. And so as we demand more of that and we stand up and we're awake against what the pharma is trying to do in this industry, you know, pushing these things like crazy. I think the more we do that, the more we can see how it does violate spiritual, religious, fundamental values. Uh, that'll give people more courage and more boldness to say, I'm going to stand by my convictions and not do this stuff. Exactly. And just as you cannot disconnect the mind-body connection, you can't disconnect the mind-body-spirit connection. The spirit's right. all tangled in there. And it's just all interconnected. And what I know about science and what I know about faith and what I know about so many things, I can't distangle them for them to just, I mean, I'm not just a religious person the day I, you know, walking into a church and sitting in a pew. No, that's not, you know, every, it's like you said, you have to be who you are and it encompasses everything. And so that's a good place for us to segue now to, um, to the, topic that we're going to mainly be talking about, um, and that is what's going on with this uh, push toward encouraging troubled individuals um, who are grappling with the idea of, of gender confusion, gender dysphoria, there's so many names for it, um, and doing these very permanent, life-altering um, surgeries or taking um, the drugs. So again, if you've got young ears and this isn't a topic that you want um, them to uh, listen to, um, 
might want to tune out till the top of the hour when we'll come back with Carl. So, uh, you know, one of the things that I wanted to to mention at the get go is that I don't understand. Now, I under you know, there are so many factors going into what's happening with this whole sudden movement that children are confused about whether they're a boy or a girl. But my thought is this. It, it, studies show that anywhere from maybe, I don't know the low end, fi- above 50% to up to 94% of children who at some point of their childhood are confused about gender identity, this gets resolved and they identify with their birth biological sex you know, by the time they're 18, 19, 20. So how can it be medically ethical or ethical for psychologists or anyone to encourage a child to embrace their gender confusion rather than help them try to figure out, you know, safely where to go next? So um, that's just where I want to start the conversation. Well, I don't think that medical ethics apply. They don't rely on, they don't incorporate it into this whole process. I mean, I'll yeah, just, it does they, apply, but they're not being used is what you mean. We, uh, for sure. It, it, I, I would go so far as to say they don't even, and when I say apply, I'm talking about incorporating it into the discussion, yeah. Yeah. let alone letting it be a factor in how they make decisions. They don't even bring it into the discussion because there isn't any discussion about uh if we look at gender dysphoria as it's defined by the standards of care with WPATH, it talks about uh, discomfort and distress that's caused by a discrepancy between the perceived gender and then they call it the assigned sex at birth, which is your biologic sex. Mm-hmm. What they do not take any time to do that I can tell in looking through the standards of care is try and understand what the cause of the discomfort or disconnect is mm-hmm. between the biologic sex and this uh, the perceived gender at the time. And that's why we have such a big issue with Richard. That's where medical ethics fails in this entire, they don't look and say, we need to understand the cause and then treat to the cause. In fact, they do everything they can to say there's no pathology associated with this at all. Wow. And so that's where I think it's for me. And it's, I'm still, I will be honest. Um, this case is um, my first time into the whole trans community. Taking apart W path is quite an adventure. It is a read that's like no other medical journal I've read. It relies more on political climates and socioeconomic status than to help with the health of the patient than it does medical uh, objective medical practices and treatments um, it looks more at the influences on the individual's life from a social perspective than it does at what's going on within their body, for example. And mm-hmm. oh. Sometimes to explore or be confused. Yeah, you your, your connection is a, is a little bit broken up, but I think we have you back. Um, are you able to hear okay. me now, Daniel? Okay. Um, I can hear you. So can can you then start, tell us about Richard. Yeah. It's a very long story. Richard, I know there's such a great emphasis on 
making sure there's no transmutilation surgeries with minors. My goodness, we should have all hands on deck to stop that. Richard was an adult. He was 26 at the time. But his background is phenomenal. And how they, in terms of where they went from uh, Richard only presented to the clinic to diagnosing him with gender dysphoria, Richard was sexually assaulted by his brother from the ages of seven to nine uh, repeatedly and in a very frequent fashion. When that was discovered, he was removed from his home and put into another home where his father and he, uh, brother lived. He never went to school, so he had no socialization. He went to high school for one semester but couldn't handle it. Throughout this entire time, his entire childhood, Richard was a patient at Kaiser. Different facilities, but their record keeping is easy to track and his problems are easy to find. During his childhood and into his young adult years, Richard was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and severe depression, all at different times, but all in, in present when he found his way to the Gender Pathways Clinic in San Francisco, which is a Kaiser facility. Uh, now, Richard had been looking to understand what had happened to him, I think, as a youth, and he was cross-dressing, and he was identifying as a female. At times, he was in and out um, throughout his uh, late teens and into his 20s. He made some friends and uh, uh, at the, um, LGBTQ, the LGBT community took him in, uh, he found acceptance, and he continued in identifying as a female uh, for a period of time when he got into the clinic. They diagnosed him with gender dysphoria almost immediately. At the time that he was diagnosed, they then transitioned into hormonal treatment. Within a couple months, he never underwent regular therapy, psychotherapy of any kind, to talk about the post-traumatic stress disorder, the bipolar disorder, the schizophrenia, the depression. They never talked about any of that. In fact, they said to him, bipolar, or excuse me, you are gender dysphoric. If you have this surgery, it will fix your problems. That was what they pitched to Eric or to Richard. Richard uh, was very confused and still is to this day in terms of trying to figure out what happened to him and how to get through all of the trauma of his past. Mm. Um, but in response to that, he agreed to the surgery. Now, here's an important point. When and this goes back to some of the wishy-washy nature of the WPATH standards of care. Richard told them. And this goes to because his, his identity as in his gender identity, sure he's dressing like a female, but he tells them three times it's in the chart. I want to be a father. I want to have children. Three times it's written in the chart. One time I kid you not, it is bolded. And with those entries, which would suggest perhaps he wants to identify as a male, mm -hmm. and he's got some gender confusion, and that maybe being a male is something they should work toward. They discount that completely. And the reason they do that is once you have decided that you are gender confused or that you want to transition, there's only one road in this world, the trans world. You are now going to transition to the other sex. They don't ever look at it and say, well, what are the causes? And maybe, maybe this is just some confusion and you should be actually working back toward 
a gender more consistent with your biologic sex. It's not in the W path. It is not a recommended course of treatment. In fact, the APA has said, we're not even going to allow that type of therapy. So there's only one course. Richard's told this will fix your problems. Your lifetime of psychological and emotional problems are fixed with this transition. Therapy, hormonal therapy is given to them. It creates a euphoria. It definitely changes the way that you think. And the next thing you know, he's having a vaginal plasty and a facial feminization surgery. They removed his ability to be a father, even though he said that's what he wanted. Hmm. And that tells you that this is not about patient health. This is not about caring for the patients and getting them to a place where confusion is relieved and they have an understanding of who they are and they can align their gender with their biologic sex or transition. There's no discussion in the beginning mm-hmm. of that. And that's what to me is just the most atrocious thing that it, occurred. Here. I just prayers for Richard. I'm so sorry for what he's gone through. And I, I do hope with your support that he does get to a peaceful place in life where he can, you know, have some quality. Um, it's just, it's heartbreaking. And one of the things that I cannot understand, the difference between biologically being a man or a woman, it's not about the body parts and it's not just about the hormones. You can't turn a man into a woman. You can't turn a woman into a man. You can you can add some hormones that will make some changes. You can cut things off and add things. Uh, I, I apologize. I don't mean to be crude about it, but um, you know, but that does not, I mean, the, the complexities of how a man thinks when they, when they, a man and woman, you give them a math problem to solve their different parts of their brain light up. We are so different in so many ways. Wonderful in wonderfully different in so many ways, but just the thought that they're telling him that you want to be a woman. And if we do this surgery and give you these drugs, you will voila actually be a woman when that it, you cannot, it, it just can't be right. I mean, <laughs> well, I will, let me, if I can get into what happened to him medically and it's a little graphic, but I think it's important for people to hear. And you've given a little warning to to the viewers and listeners for the younger ears. But if it's okay, I'd like to describe what happens. We uh, are on AM radio, so let's kind of use a little bit, a little bit. language. Okay. So they use, they insert, uh, we'll use anatomically correct names. They insert a uh, fake vagina, right? It's plastic. They've created an opening. They've removed the very healthy and functional penis and testicles. So the castration is complete. They then adjust the urethra, they make some adjustments, and they insert a plastic vagina. Now, the body, this just goes to show you, this isn't some simple little thing. The body's natural tendency is to close open wounds. And so there has to be dilation by the patient every day, multiple times a day to maintain space, or you can't function at all. But ultimately, it doesn't serve the same function that it does for a female. And you are not even one step closer to being a female. The only thing that's happened physically physically, is they've removed healthy body parts, a healthy organ. 
that could help you have children and placed in a fake piece of synthetic material and said that you now have the parts of a female, but you don't, it's not even close. And you have to, and we know that because you have to continue to dilate for the rest of your life. And when you don't you get infections, consistent bleeding, Richard has had ongoing UTIs since the surgery. It comes, it goes, it comes, it goes. He's had bleeding since the surgery comes and goes, comes and goes. And I'm not talking every six months. We're talking every several weeks. So they didn't create a woman. That's you make a, such a great point. They didn't do anything close to that. And and yet they're telling him beforehand that's just what's going to happen. And and when we look at the complexity of the human being and how this these types of mutilation have no chance of changing the man biologically into a female is if we look at Richard's statement to everybody in the medical community and in the health in the mental health community, I want to be a father. That's distinctly different than I want to be a mother. He didn't say I want to be a mother, make me a woman. He said I want to be a father. And we know from inside, and you've identified it. There's something about being a father that is distinctly different than being a, a mother. Mm-hmm. And yet they discounted that. And so we're going to put this synthetic piece of material in your body, and that's going to fix you. It doesn't do anything of the sort. No. And and that's the thing that's the most frustrating for me is it's a complete lie the idea of informed consent occurring in these procedures it doesn't exist at all no and and yet they go forward as if this is some type of thing that advances the health of the individual it does not and i haven't seen yet and i've started to do some searching we're going to do a big deep dive on this i've yet to see a person be presented as someone who feels that the actual Surgical transition completed them from a biologic male to a female or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Most people have some sort of regret or didn't satisfy their expectations. Mm -hmm. And they're left now mutilated. Chloe Cole, what an incredibly courageous, beautiful person Mm -hmm. recognizing her in what she's lost. I mean, that is such a sad story. Richard never fathered children. Mm-hmm. And they're just two of many, many, many people that are being lied to. Mm-hmm. It's all predicated on lies. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to, again, I, for me, so much of what we're doing today is fighting a spiritual war. I mean, the, the, the mandates and the tyranny there, the remdesivir and the lies and the murder there, and now this transmutilation stuff, it's all rooted in evil, in my opinion. And you said that... The- Nobody is being allowed to actually address the underlying cause of the dysphoria, you know, to, you know, talk therapy or what help them address whatever issues push them in this way. And if, I mean, I mean, there might be, we don't know what percentage of individuals who experience this um might not ever be able to be helped, but since you cannot actually become biologically the other sex, wouldn't it be better? And I'm just putting ideas out there. I'm not trying to be cruel, but wouldn't it kind of be better to just help people feel loved and accepted for who they identify with in the body that they were born, the healthy body they were born with? Even if you identified as a 
as a woman and you never were able to let go of that if that's how you perceived yourself but to be able to keep your ability to become a father you could be a parent to that what do you know what i mean it's like so so it's it's about informed consent and informed consent it seems like all of the issues we deal with across the board everything that's happening that's an attack on us um in the world is because we're not given full information um, to make decisions. And then um, your choices are being taken away from you, you know, and you're being punished for making a choice. And instead of that free informed consent means you have enough information and you either consent or you decline. They always leave that out. I mean, the word informed consent maybe needs to be modified to to make sure that people understand informed consent includes the ability to say no, to opt out without repercussion, without punishment. Um, 100%. And I think, well, as it's defined and when you obtain informed consent from a patient as a physician, for example, you are to obtain provide them information on the risks of your recommended procedure, right? Mm -hmm. The alternatives to your recommended procedure and the consequences of both the recommended procedure and the alternatives. So risk benefits, alternatives, all of those things, consequences, those need to be discussed. And and it's the alternative portion that they're skipping out on so often anymore. For example, with remdesivir, with this trans, you know, with fixing somebody who is, has some gender nonconformity or gender dysphoric, you know, propensities. There's no alternative. Like you said, there's no information on those alternatives. They're taking that from us. And that's the scary thing that's happening. I mean, we're seeing it in the remdesivir cases. So why, and I want to get onto the remdesivir too, Dan, it, you know, it just kind of dawned on me. Why is there this assumption that somebody who's gender dysphoric, they have to try to alter them to become what biologically they're not shouldn't the first step be let's not only go over what the causes causes for everything you got to go after the causes but then do what we can at least as a first attempt to help this individual who's born a female feel like a female and enjoy being a female or the male the male why can't we do that and if that doesn't work and you know you know then the option could always be, you know, support them in what their fully informed choice might be. Although like, right. But we're, we're not allowing, we're not helping. That doesn't even make sense to me that somebody that we, the first step wouldn't be help them to be who they were born. Well, Richard's an incredible example of that. I mean, here you have someone who has got four different mental health diagnoses, all from the DSM five. He needs help. Mm -hmm. And no one's looking at those problems and saying, let's examine what happened to you as a young boy from when you were assaulted as a young boy to today and why you might have some of these confusions as it relates to that. So let's talk that out. Let's work through that trauma. Let's work through your bipolar issues where you're manic and then you're depressed. You know, let's talk about whether you have schizophrenia and actually reality is altered to you. And maybe your perception of things is completely um unaligned or misaligned, right? Nobody even goes there. Why? Because they need affirmation of the confusion to move people into transition. So you go immediately to affirmation and there is no turning around. There's no other road. Somebody suggests gender 
confusion, gender dysphoria, and they're moved, they're affirmed. And that's, you see it in California with someone under over 12 years old now, parents can, there's a bill, they're trying to make it a crime to not affirm your kids after 12 years old, to not have a conversation about, hey, wait a minute, you're a boy or you're a girl biologically, maybe we should talk about what that looks like and what it could look like for you in the future. They're not even giving, they're going to take that right away. That's what they want to do from parents. And they're going to put it into one position only. That's affirmation. Affirmation leads to transition and transition leads to treatment and money in a very evil intent is completely. And, and a transition for the um, medical and pharmaceutical industry is a lifelong thing because you are forever having to take their drugs and do their procedures or do whatever it is to try to maintain this, this artificial um, state that you are, are now in. It's just, it's heartbreaking. I I'm so grateful for you to um, that you're on this. Where are you now in the case? What's going on with the, the lawsuit and who are you suing? So we sued Kaiser Permanente and each of the surgeons and physicians that were involved. We also served, uh, or filed against the marriage family therapist uh, who was involved in the initial workup and diagnoses of gender dysphoria. And um, Kaiser has, as many people may know, a, a arbitration agreement with every member, and you have to go to arbitration. It's a very sophisticated and uh, well-put-together system. We tried to file in court. Kaiser fought that and had it removed from the court proceeding so we could go to an arbitrator and have this thing done in a conference room somewhere. We've been fighting against uh, the different arbitrators that have been recommended through their process because many of them are cases filed in the Bay area and California, very liberal and uh, jurisdiction and a liberal populace. And so we've been fighting to get a good arbitrator. And I think we have found one that we believe can be fair and impartial. And so the arbitrator has been selected and we'll be beginning our course of discovery here in the next couple of months. And we're going to tear into all of the information that they have, which is very limited scientific basis for what they did. And uh, we're going to try and exploit that as much as we can and then expose it to everybody who will listen. Okay. So we'll be recording depositions um, of the doctors. We will have their sworn responses and discovery that we'll make available so people can see what they relied on. All of that is fine to do because it's their, their statements under oath. So our goal is to get as much information as we can to show that this is really not a medical type of a process in the sense that it relies on objective information and you know studies and, and history of successful treatments. None of that. None, there's no nothing to support the idea that any of this works, and yet they tell the patients that it does. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where we are. We're getting ready to launch into the fight, and I'm, I'm okay. you know, it's maybe not the right word to say I'm excited, but I'm definitely ready to get after it. Um, uh, you know, when you get to know Richard and you see what they did to him, I mean, it, it just, uh, it's very yeah. compelling to get in there and fight for him. Yeah. Good for you. I, I want to tell viewers about, let me see if I can go ahead and do this about your website. It's um, declare truth. Correct. Us declare truth. Us. And you can go read more about um, Dan's good work here. And is this is this website your your law firm or what? what are uh, so it's a very long story. I'll try and make it really quick. 
uh, I got involved in this work, like you had mentioned in my intro, the intro that um, I've been working for 29 years and all the different areas that I've been practicing in and with the change in administration and just seeing what was happening in the government uh, in terms of their the tyranny that was being exercised on the people. I've been, was looking for a way to get involved. It was just chomping at the bit, going crazy. And that's when they sent out the first mandates in California on a large scale were against college students, one of the healthiest populations we have. Yeah. My youngest was a senior in one of the state schools. And uh, so we looked into the best way to fight it. And we both had, he had, and I have religious objections to um, the um, shots. We had learned a lot about the shots and why they were so problematic through defend, uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, Pacific Justice Institute, and some great interactions there. We ended up getting a bunch of exemptions for the kids, and then it took off. They issued that same mandate against healthcare facilities. And uh, the next thing you know, we're representing hosp- people against hospitals up and down the state. Uh, first responders, the city of Los Angeles and its employees, the Los Angeles PD, and just on and on and on. And things, that's when I shifted completely and talked to my law partner who was gracious enough to allow me to completely turn and fight these fights. And so that's when we formed Declare Truth because we knew that we were going to have to have some presence, some fundraising ability outside of, you know, just my law firm. And mm-hmm. so we started with the mandates. Then we got involved in the Remdesivir cases. Um, and then most recently with Richard. So the three kind of pillars that Declare Truth is based on uh, at this point revolve around the mandates uh, for the shot, remdesivir, and then transmutilation treatment um, and fighting for those individuals. So we created this website. Everything is, we're running with our hair on fire. So (laughs) we're putting the website together. But if people wanted to help, they can go. They can see Richard's case right there. They can support him. All the money that comes in through Declare Truth goes to the clients to help support their cases. It's very expensive, this type of litigation. None of it is collected for fees. It only goes to the support of the cases. But there's a remdesivir support. You can do that there. You can do that for Richard. And then we have some of the mandate cases up uh, for support. And then just generally, there's a tab. I know it has my picture. We've been trying to change that. But if you want to just support the entire effort um, and and uh, you let us allocate it as needed across the country. You can click on, uh, there's a picture down there under support that has my uh, name and right there. And that goes to the cases, not to me. Um, but that, so that's declared truth. We did it. We've, we've formed a 501c3 on it to try and provide people a place to donate and then uh, for us to, to collect some money to help with these lawsuits because uh, the people that are fighting these fights, you know, they're not well off, and they're certainly not as well off as the establishments we're going against, very well-funded uh, mm-hmm. establishments. And across the board, just to give people an idea of what it's like on the other side, the uh, transmutation cases, the remdesivir cases, and the mandate cases, they all have groups of defense attorneys that get together on a regular basis across the country, the largest firms with the best of partner for, you know, attorneys meeting and collaborating on how to fight against the effort of the people to go and have their rights heard. And so it is a coordinated effort in each of these three areas with the defense getting together. There's all sorts of money flying around on their end to try and crush these cases. And so um, it is a well-organized, a well-funded machine on the other side, um, but we're here to go after it and we hope that people will join us in the fight. 
We got truth and light and the angels on our side. So okay. let's go get them. Tell me a little bit about these remdesivir cases. I, I you know, I do know uh, somebody here who lost a loved one to uh, remdesivir. I mean, a personal, but you hear of so many. Um, where, where are those lawsuits? Right now we filed several in Fresno. We have four that we're preparing to file in Michigan four in Texas. We have some that we're preparing to file in Arizona and Nevada. So we're trying to develop it across the country. Uh, the cases for the most part are all in the very beginnings of the pleading stage where we've, we've presented our case and the other side, this is where they're most organized has um, their responses, primarily the prep act um, to in the immunities that are provided for the medical treatment that's, that's associated with um, the remdesivir. Um, so we're in the pleading stage, crafting the best complaints we can to get past the PrEP Act. Um, and then we're also, in certain jurisdictions, going to allege malpract medical malpractice, knowing we'll lose under the PrEP Act, but so we can appeal and challenge the constitutionality of the PrEP Act in terms of its broad scope. And for anyone who doesn't know, the PrEP Act provides immunity under these types of emergency procedures and there's specific legislation when it comes to countermeasures for COVID. Anything that's seen as a countermeasure to treat COVID is immune. Mm -hmm. And it is broad as broad gets. So we want to challenge that. Um, the uh, And then for anyone who doesn't know, the remdesivir cases revolve around an actual protocol that is designed to treat, quote, treat COVID. Uh, the protocol is unbelievably um toxic yeah I, it's evil it, it is, is it is the taking of a life it is designed to take life and i will tell you i've done like i said i've done med mal medical malpractice and dental malpractice my entire career uh when i first heard about what was going on with these protocols i i kind of discounted it said no this is just an you know someone who's really hurting they've lost a loved one and they're being very dramatic and then that first story turned into 10, turned into 20. And then we filed these lawsuits and then it turned into 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, 10,000. And that's what we know about. It's just my small little place in this, this fight. Wow. Uh, the protocol involves the diagnosis of COVID, isolation of the patient, forced oxygen, uh, sedatives uh, at incredible doses that are designed to actually decrease the respiratory uh, condition of the patient. They administer remdesivir as if it has some efficacy against COVID. When it has none, it actually attacks the kidneys and causes renal failure. Its history, well known in the industry, goes back to Ebola studies where it was used as one of five uh, medications that were tested against Ebola. And it was pulled from the study because 53% of the people who received remdesivir who had Ebola died. Everybody, all the other medications they were testing went way down by like 4, 5, 10%. So they pulled Ebola. It served zero purpose in helping patients and they shelved it until now. Mm -hmm. So they give remdesivir to the patients, causes renal failure, increases fluids, increases the res decreases the respiratory process, hurts the heart. Uh, they're medicating them, and then they intubate them, which is definitely a bad thing uh, in terms of trying to bring the patient out. Uh, but the most two most alarming things for me 
in all of that because that could all be hidden pretty well under just hey we're trying to save the patient mm -hmm. yeah we like just about 30 seconds here we have a lot of patients who have been strapped to the beds mm -hmm. with their hands um but they've been deprived of nutrition intentionally oh. from food and water it's incredible yeah it deprived food uh water strapped to the beds, intubated, given toxic medicines. And then I've heard many, many, from many, many people that they told the doctors, like they've got a, um, a bacterial infection, got pneumonia or something. And they say, that's not part of the protocol. We can't treat it. Exactly. And then the studies are coming in out now showing the people didn't die of COVID. They died of these bacterial pneumonias that were not being treated. So um, Dan Watkins, bless your heart for all you're doing. Everybody, please go to declaretruth.us um, and, and dig deep and, and support this great legislation that he's doing. Um, will you come join us again when you have some information to update us on? Absolutely. Be happy to. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to um, uh, an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. We'll be back in a few minutes. Delivers honest takes and critical insights into the issues of our day. Then look no further than the Flame Paper. The Flame Paper is written for the people by the people who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative be it health care, voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one-world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to theflameusa.com. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at HealthyImmunityNow.org. That's HealthyImmunityNow.org. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today we need a
Hey, welcome back to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and TV. Um, that was such an amazing first hour. I hope uh, folks are be able to go back and listen to it if you missed it. Uh, very important subject that we all need to be paying attention to in, in, in my belief anyway. This next hour, um, it might seem a little bit more dry and mundane, but let me tell you. Uh, data is where it is. Um, I've got Carl Kanthak here and I'm, I see if we can come on, see if we can hear you. Carl, how's your audio doing? looks like you were having it, trouble with it. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Woohoo. Okay. You are here. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's somehow I've, uh, yeah. Oh, you're good. So you're anyway. on air. We're, we're doing well. Um, yeah. As long as we're not, uh, uh, yeah. If I'm not echoing or have you echoing back through, then we're good to go. We're good to go, sir. Um, so, you know, I, Carl, you've been on before and listeners have heard you talk and you, you're my data guy. And I always want to stress that while the information that you bring, some folks might find a little interesting, you know, maybe a little dry. They're not really into data. But I tell you, our freedom is being stolen with one skewed data point after another, because what happens is these little tricks of, of data manipulation and ridiculous studies put out all of this stuff, lobbyists go to our legislators and they present it as ridiculous fact. They put fear in these legislators and then our freedoms are taken away. Um, and so it is so important to understand the tricks because Carl, I have worked with him for years now, and I've seen him present his information to legislators. I've seen their jaws drop open when they realize how they were lied to. And, you know, legislators do not like to be lied to. So we need to be paying attention to this stuff. And and what um, what I wanted Carl to come on and talk to us about is something he knows well, and it was a Peter Hotez study. <laughs> um, yeah. So, Carl, do you feel comfortable backing up again? And, and if any of our listeners today have not heard of Dr. Peter Hotez, do you know enough about him to give a little overview of who he is and what his influence has been? Well, yeah, let me let me do this then. Um, so what I'd recommend people to do, I have a sub stack and, and one of, and I have this weird talent where when I read a study, I understand how they're manipulating it and why they're manipulating it and how they're going to use it for future manipulation yes. and how they're going to use it to trick the legislators. So, um, it's my quite first a gift. real awareness of Peter <laughs> was this big in 2018, June 12th of 2018 was a story about how there was this, um, certain counties in the country had, uh, extremely high exemption rates and the most, uh, the big one was Camas County, Idaho, with a 26.67% exemption so, rate. And what we're talking about here is school exemptions. So um, schools require certain vaccines and parents Correct. will either file their certificate of immunization that says the kid got all the shots or they will file an exemption for one or more of the shots. So that's what we're talking about, the school school entry vaccination rates. Correct. Okay. Correct. And so what Dr. Hotez has been uh, his his uh, uh, premise has been back to them and now is that there is this social movement of anti-vaccine um, that's uh, uh, an illegitimate opposition to vaccination and that over time this group has becoming stronger and m more well-funded, uh, which is a 
laugh to anybody that's involved in this because there's no <laughs> revenue stream with getting yeah. people to not use a product. But then, and most of us uh, are volunteers, right, Carl? I mean, that's how, right. how much money have you lost uh, flying here <laughs> and there, even, driving here and there, speaking? We do not get paid to do what we do. The opportunity cost of the time is, yeah. the, is the big part. Yeah. But uh, so when this when this article came out and it was uh, two years after SB 277 and they they kept running up against the wall because California was in the books before they even dropped the bill. Yeah. And SB 277, for people who forgot, that is the California bill that removed um, all but non-medical exemptions to school. Correct. Entry, all non-medical right? exemptions were re were removed in uh, with SB 277. Well, and that's its own talk because they say that's what they did, but what they really did was they gave everybody a one-year grace period. And when it did implement, only incoming kindergartners and students going into seventh grade were impacted. So everybody that was in school on, on July or June 30th, whenever that passed of 2015, mm -hmm. they were given until January 1st of 2016 to get a new personal belief exemption. And then, uh, and the bill itself didn't start until the summer of 2016 in between the school years. Mm -hmm. So the amazing thing was, is everyone that was in school in the school year 2014, 15, 100% of those students were back in school September of 2015. And then, and that's how they avoided what happened in New York, which was all of the uh, protests and the, because they, 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 what they did was they slowly implemented this. It's still not completely implemented yet. I think there's mm -hmm. still one or two more classes that are under personal belief exemptions that came before SB 277. Now, what they did was they told everybody that they got rid of exemptions 100%. They went to the other states and said, hey, remember, there was all of that drama and all of that noise and everyone was screaming. And once we passed the bills, crickets. And so they lied to the other legislators and said, what happened was everybody just went and got vaccinated. You, you saw all the drama. And then once we passed the bill, nothing. So then New, New York is like, hey, let's do the same thing. And boom, they've got six lawsuits and people standing outside and uh, protests and everything else, um, which is another part of the coordinated. This is a coordinated effort mm -hmm. with all kinds of planning and all kinds of uh, connected. You know, they're communicating with each, with each other for what works and what doesn't work. So, yeah. After and well, I just want to say, I mean, Carl, this is really so important, the coordination of what's going right. on and what is being told behind the scenes and the lies being told. And this is why it's so important for citizens to be active, because if you are not walking the halls and of the your capital and bringing information to your legislator, the only ones they're talking to are the lobbyists and the biggest lobbyists telling the biggest falsehoods are coming from your own health department. Right. Um, that yeah. happens at, at this point. There's the, there's there is no separation between the public health employees and the pharmaceutical people. No, there's you know, not. There, other there, than other than the the name on the check that they're exactly. getting. Exactly. It's but, your taxpayer dollars paying for it instead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, but uh, uh, no, I mean they are they are for practical purposes at this point. There is no there is no distinction between a public health officer. And somebody yeah. that works for pharma in 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 terms of what they're doing, yeah. So yeah. so so when I heard a hotez, so 
you know, they did this big push in, in 15 and then we stopped them in Washington. They stopped them in Oregon, um, in Vermont. They did a, they did a terrible thing. They took a bill that had already been through a couple of phases, gutted it, put in the exemption, uh, elimination, scheduled it during spring break where we're in Vermont when everybody goes to Florida, they would only let someone with, I can't remember if it was an MD or a PhD testify. It was, a, a and they wouldn't release the vaccination rates uh, without having a freedom of information act. Oh, good heavens. Because the rates had gone down that year. So everything that they were saying was manipulation in order to get the legislation, you know, to, to and, 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 you know, to, to fool the legislators that they had an excessively high exemption use. And I'm watching these legislators uh, that are saying before they, you know, I don't want to vote for this, but I have schools in my district with a 23% exemption rate. And I know that that school has 14 kindergartners. And so that's two kids that are missing their chicken pox shot. Mm -hmm. And, but the, but the legislators are being, uh, you know, they're being intentionally misled to, so that they'll think that they have, uh, that, you know, the, the public health comes in and says, well, do you realize how low the rates are? And, uh, you're going to be blamed for the inevitable epidemic that's going to occur from this. Mm -hmm. And they're and the way it's presented to them, that the only responsible action you can take is to get rid of these exemptions because you have all these selfish medical Luddite, um, you know, irresponsible anti-vaxxers that uh, uh, Jenny McCarthy, they throw, you know, and mm -hmm. that was their perception. So the one silver lining of COVID has been that, that, that you know, they're, they punched a lot of holes in their own, uh, in their own balloon here uh, in terms of their credibility. So in yeah. 2018, Hotez came out with this, this quote unquote study that was proving that there was this national anti-vaccine uh, um, organization a movement that was causing these absurdly high exemption rates. And so the, the, the poster child of it being Camas County, Idaho with a 26.67% exemption rate. So I went through that study and, uh, and I, and I actually, that's, I have some slides here that we can go through too. I've got a, a follow-up on our EHB yeah. last time, yeah. but uh, uh, I can go through that. But so what I did was, uh, I had that and and we were looking at trying to get a uh, um, have it retracted because it's that bad. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just weren't uh, the none of the none of the people with the pr proper uh, credentials at that time had the bandwidth to be able to go after it. And then it's it kind of petered out over time because it was the, and, and the reason it petered out was because maybe somebody went to Camas County, Idaho and figured out that 26.67% is four of 15 kindergarten students. And they realized we don't want anyone to know that. Mm -hmm. So what we'll do, I'm just going to spend, uh, uh, I got to, uh, I'm going to go catch us up on, on the HB, EHB 1638. Then we'll wrap with the Peter Hotez. If okay. you don't mind, that's yeah. the order. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, we, we, you know, the, the promo for the show today was explaining a lot of people have heard in case you haven't that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was on the Joe Rogan right. podcast and he spoke for three hours. It was amazing. If you want a condensed history of, of the vaccine safety movement and, and all the fraud and hidden information go listen to that podcast. It's fantastic. But after this, Joe Rogan, it was, you know, he, he admits in the beginning, he said, you know, 
I used to believe, you know, that vaccines were safe and effective and that you were crazy anti-vaxxer, he says to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and that anti-vaxxers were crazy nutters and all that. But he said, but then COVID came along and I began to like think a little bit more deeply. Now I'm not quoting him, right? But this was the gist of what he said. And then he realized, he asked himself, well, why do I believe that, you know, Bobby Kennedy doesn't know what he's talking about? It's because that's what he was told. Right. He never researched it. He never researched anything. And he's like, well, this is odd. I have all these strong beliefs, but they're built on headlines and things I was told. So then he started going down the rabbit hole. Right. And now, I mean, you know, once you pull back that screen and you, you know, you see the little man behind the curtain there. And this time right. it's, the little man is Hotez with his bow tie. With bow tie yeah. <laughs> You're like, holy cow. And so Joe Rogan's a little bit. uh He's a little bit angry now, and he's calling for a debate between Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and this Peter Hotez that you're talking about, who the entire medical establishment and public health establishment have put on a pedestal as the man who knows science, right? And, of course, he's refusing to debate Bobby. Well, he's refusing to to debate Bobby Kennedy because, because of studies like you're calling out, these ridiculously bogus studies that he has done. Okay, so now well, you're going to... And, go and this one ties right in with it because it okay. uses the same it, it uses the same things. Same playbook. So, yes. So after we after our last visit, you know, and I and I'm trying to simplify this as much as I can for people that aren't that aren't uh, total uh, wonks about this like myself. So. Um, <laughs> what, so and the reason we got together last time you invited me on was because a, a study was released that claimed that the the EHB 1638 so in in 2019 Washington they re, they uh, revoked the ability for a family to use a personal or philosophical belief for the MMR and now this is supposed to be a follow up and there's a claim that this has been a great success yes and so what my what my warning is is for the advocates in the same way that the Hotez paper was abused that I'll have in a few slides here uh, this is going to be abused, and this study will be misrepresented to claim that restricting exemptions increases vaccination rates. And what is the truth? Now, this is a uh, uh, an opinion that was in the same issue of the American Journal of Public Health. And so uh, the concurrent AGPH opinion piece lauding the EHB 1638 is a success and a potential model. EHB 1638 was associated with a 5.4% relative increase in kindergarten MMR and a 41% decrease in MMR exemptions. And then that's as far as most people are going to read that. And that's certainly as much as any uh, pharma lobbyist or public health person is going to read to their legislator. So what happens is when somebody hears that, an in-the-head napkin calculation is going to be this. Well, look, so if Washington was able to get 5% relative increase and decrease exemptions 41%, the exemptions must have been 10 11%, right? Because that's about how those numbers interact with each other. And so what's going to happen is, so from the from the abstract, what it actually says is that the implementation was associated with a 5.4% relative increase in kindergarten MMR vaccine series rates and that uh, MMR no, exemptions no, no. overall Completion decreased. rates, right? Correct. The word and completion so, rates is important. Yeah. Yeah. That makes that's where they're going to trick people. So mm-hmm. all the legis all the all the legislators are going to hear is that there was a 5.4 percent increase increase in MMR complete and an exemption decrease. And that's going to be the primary points that will be taken away by the pharma lobbyists and public health. And the terms associated relative is going to be lost. And the actual exemption reduction, which was only one point three percent, will be ignored now. 
so this is a new chart. And for the radio listeners, what I'm doing here is I'm showing that the uh, this chart is designed to conceal the true low initial exemption rate, which was 3.1%. So, and, and the small increase that they got, which was 1.3%. So what, what they do is, is that public health ignores, they pretend there's only two statuses, which is a complete or a complete or not complete. And they imply that that's exempt, but not complete is not exempt. You might just be so, with, missing one shot or two correct, shots. Missing one. Or the they, yes. yeah, yeah. So, so, and then, so this paper is designed to imply that the 5.4% relative increase was shifting exempt to complete. And that's absolutely false. And that's what I'll be able to show here. So that of course, uh, uh, you know, to quickly recap, then if the exemption's only 3.1, even if you zero it, you can't get a 5.4 increase. That's the first problem. The second problem is the exemption didn't go to zero. It only went down by 1.3. And again, you can't get a 5.4 increase by reducing exemption 1.3. Mm-hmm. So if you look at uh, what the Washington Department of Health was doing is they were uh, going along claiming that exemptions are causing low MMR complete rates. And so for the listeners that we have complete rates of 89 so 2014 through 2019, we have 89.5, 90.9, 90.590. And they imply that, that the reason that that is, is because of exemptions. But the exemption rate uh, is only 3.1%. So wow, the, uh, this program threw off the formatting. But uh, mm-hmm. so what happened was, so the exemption averaged 3%. So if you have only, if you have a 90% is the average, uh, excuse me, 3% is the average exempt rate. So that means 97% of the students are not exempt, but you've only got 90% complete. And that's because there's 6.4% average out of compliance. And then out of and compliance. Explain. What does okay, out of compliance out mean? Of compliance. So complete is a student who has two MMR injections documented on the November 1 of the school year. Mm. So, and at, so on November one, a student either has two MMR documented or they have an exemption form, or if they don't, they're out of compliance. Mm -hmm. And so historically, or for the period of this study, which was 2014 through 2022, the average exemption was 3%. The average complete was 90. Well, that leaves six and a half percent in the middle there that is out of compliance. So out parents of, have not turned in the paperwork. That's it. Correct. Or or they or they're just or the student simply is waiting for his second MMR. That's yeah. the biggest driver. They measure, right now. They're measuring in kindergarten instead of first grade, which makes Correct. more sense. Correct. And in fact, the rates uh, that was when one of the changes was when they changed the reporting date. So so what happens is now out of compliance has double the impact to reduce complete rates than exemptions, because out of compliance is six percent every year. And mm-hmm. exemptions only been three percent. Mm-hmm. Now, out of compliance has nothing to do with exemptions. Out of compliance is caused by Washington Department of Health measurement policy, <clears throat> and that's because the second MMR is scheduled in a three-year window between the fourth and seventh bin- birthday, and kindergarten enrolls at age five. And so, the, the 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 vaccine schedule used to be complete before kindergarten, and it's only been since uh, 1999 they've added four extra boosters during that time period 
And the one that's most uh, uh, is affecting today is the MMR. Now, Washington Department of Health calls complete is two injections documented on November 1st of the school year. But if you're not in school, you're not out of compliance until after the age of seven. Mm -hmm. So what happens is there's a disharmony between the medical age-based dose injection timing and the Department of Health administrative grade-based measurement criteria. Mm -hmm. So this causes not exempt, but not yet complete one injection students to be falsely categorized as out of compliance. These students are fully within medical guidelines up to age seven. Now, the um, single reference. Now, I, I want to bring up two, yeah. uh, two points here, Carl. One is that I'm I, at the beginning of the first hour, I told people I'm wearing this shirt. And, and in 2018, I spoke to the Board of Health and I was wearing this shirt, you know, and I was talking about AIM, Association Immunization Managers, which is a collaboration with pharma and the head of every immunization department. But I also spoke about, um, I'm not sure it was in that actual talk, but the slides presented by the pharmaceutical industry to um, the immunization department heads at the meeting from that year was a slide that clearly showed collect data at the kindergarten level for the second MMR. They -hmm. were instructing them how to do this data manipulation, which you discovered. And so they are taught, do this, do this. And it's the only reason you would collect it then would be to artificially lower completion rates, right? If you, why not just look at the first graders, you know, just look at the first, it was, yeah. yeah, So that's exactly what happened. And then, and then then you submitted to the uh, department of health or through the board of health and a rule change to get to, to have several things done. One was a different age or, um, Right. Well, you change the criteria to recognize that a 12 injection five-year-old is fully within medical guidelines up until he's seven. And they rejected your idea though. Yeah. Properly (laughs) vaccinated for age or up to date or something like that. But they do that intentionally because remember that uh, less than one and a half percent of children have zero vaccines. The exemption rate is less than two and a half percent. And, 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 you know, pharma, saturated they they achieved saturation of the pediatric market in the 90s and then at that point they said and that was through school rules the liability act uh, national vaccine injury compensation act of 1986 and then vaccines for children in 94 where the government buys all the shots so mm-hmm. they all of a sudden they were getting 95 98 saturation in the late 90s they said we want to do this to adults they looked at the adults they had access uh, uh, control over which was healthcare. And they were only getting flu shots at 30 to 40%. Mm -hmm. They figured out that in order to get the same saturation in the adult market, they were going to have to have mandates. And those mandates were going to not have to have exemptions available. And the first step in getting and not having exemptions for adults is to get rid of them for the kids. And that's Mm -hmm. why we have all of this manipulation is because you can't sell getting rid of exemptions when you have a 97% voluntary compliance program, which is what they have. And nobody has ever done a study to see if 97% of kids can safely be administered all of these shots that they continue to bombard us with. And now they're adding the RSV shots and it's Mm -hmm. just so insane. Enough. Too much. We're done. (laughs) Exactly. So then, so when I looked at this paper then, uh, you know, so this paper is supposedly looking at the impact of EHB 1638. Yeah. there's nothing about out of compliance. 
and yet out of compliance went uh, went down twice as much as the exemption use did and they didn't they don't even mention that that happened yeah so using k complete rates disguises actual high mmr coverage which is what you just said and mm -hmm. that's an intentional action by them and so that once the student cohort is old enough that the disharmony between the age-based dosing schedule and the grade-based measurement does not conflict rates are within one percent of 100 minus the exemption rate so this slide here i'm just showing that the k-12 coverage is 95.9 percent for 2mmr and it's actually higher than that because there are some students that aren't documented who've been vaccinated mm -hmm. there aren't any documented students that aren't vaccinated so this is the lowest it is mm -hmm. and they and then they don't want to use this though because you can't sell exemption with 97 percent 96 percent oh you you can't sell removing people's exemptions yes, right and, right you right you no can't you can't sell, uh, you can't strike fear in the heart of legislators and i want to make it very clear that 95 percent uptake of all the shots on the schedule are harming our children today you cannot give them we've got epidemics of um of illness and the independent studies that look at non-vaccinated versus vaccinated kids, you will see that overall health of the non-vaccinated children is superior. You know, the CDC refuses to do this study. So the, for them to continue to push, they know, I mean, when you go read the IOM reports and if you read deeply in all the CDC study, um, studies and the data, they know that a certain percentage of children cannot tolerate all of these vaccines or some none of the vaccines. And we see very clearly because of these rates of, of chronic illness that's happening, that if you interrupt the infant immune system pre-cradle, the first year of life, and the CDC just admitted this year in their own study that for every 1,000 micrograms of aluminum a child is exposed to in early infancy through their vaccines, the risk of persistent asthma increases 17 to 38%. So how you can justify, this is so unethical to push rates because what we have to do, Carl, is we need to stop measuring uh, success by uptake of programs and right. start measuring outcomes of programs. And these programs are doing harm, right? And so this is why all of this is so important. Manipulating the data, trying to claim that even 95% of the rate is good. No, we, we do not need to see these numbers. If these numbers of vaccination rate numbers go down, children's health is going to go up. They might well, occasionally catch something. In the, in the 2004, yeah. in the 2004 yeah. IOM, one of the things they recommended, they recommended against looking for the susceptible groups because logically there are going to be some people just like some people can't have penicillin, some people can't right. have peanut butter, that there are going to be uniquely susceptible people. And then, uh, but- Right. They they won't even do the, the studies to say, okay, delay these back. The MMR, we know because of the whistleblower, you know, Dr. William Thompson, that if the MMR was delayed to at least age three, the adverse reactions and injuries caused by these shots would plummet. But they won't even do that. They won't say that this child should be spaced. They will give not an inch, not a millimeter. They won't give anything. It's everybody has to get everything on time or you're an anti-vaxxer, get out of my office. I mean, it's just absurd. Correct. Okay. Well, yeah. and then, uh, yeah.
So, yeah, but so then, yeah, there's never been any test of the whole scale uh, uh, schedule. All of them are tested individually. So so what really happened here? So getting back to this one real quick, then, is that so when when it when the bill passed, okay, the complete went up. It didn't go up five point four percent. It only went up three point six percent. So the five point four relative, I don't know if they're averaging the previous years or they're I don't know how I couldn't figure out where that what it's relative to. But it only went up three point six percent. And and where that came from is that the out of compliance went down 2.3 and then the exemption rate went down 2.3. Now, mathematically, that would seem like, OK, 1.3 of the exemption switched to complete, except that's not what happened because exempting people don't do that. They leave the school system. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the following years, uh, you had during 19, 2019 and 20, that was the first year of COVID, 2021, the second year of COVID the reports were delayed to the end of the school year. And what that did was it let those one injection, non-exempt students be recorded as vaccinated that year. That's mm-hmm. where the improvement came from, is that uh, in a normal measurement year, those kids would have been out of compliance and then we wouldn't have seen anything. Yeah, so yeah. if you look at 2021 here, what happened? Well, the out of compliance went up 1.7 and complete went down one8 because now they have to report at the beginning of the year like they always did before. So over time, this is going to go right back to where it was, because when you end exemptions, you don't people with exemptions don't resume or start vaccinating. They leave the school system. Yeah. Or, so or a lot. There happened? was like a 300. What was the 300 or 400 percent increase in use of religious exemptions? They moved from personal to yes, religious. Yeah. yeah the ones. Huge. Yeah. They, you had a you had a that's. Yeah. And that's why that three point. 1% didn't go to zero. The yeah. 3.1 went to 1.8. And so, one, but 1.3% of the people just said, you know what? They don't want us. We're out of here. Yeah. And so this is a, uh, uh, documentation of that Seattle times kindergarten enrollment dropped 14% the following fall when COVID started. And when that's when EHB 1638 kicked in. Yeah. And so in, uh, uh, they lost. So, so the schools are down 40,000 students, which is 4%. And have been since COVID started and which coincided with the HB 1638. So then you have a quote from Jen Garrison Stuber, uh, who's the advocacy chair of the Washington Homeschool Organization. It went from three to 10 email days to about 40. Public school enrollment lost 40,000 students. Homeschools doubled to 39,000. And this year, many of them remained in homeschool. Uh, so, and the quote from Garrison Stuber is that I've been surprised and delighted at how many stayed. <laughs> so this is a citation from the or- office of financial management. And you can see in 2019, we had 1,115,000 following year down 40,000 and it's consistently down 40,000. So it's pretty obvious. These people are done with public schools and this is part of it. Of course, there's other things going on, too. You were mm-hmm. sort of covering that in the previous hour. Mm-hmm. So legislators must understand the pressure to vaccinate is crushing. No family is hesitantly or casually exempting. Eliminating exemptions results in children leaving the schools. Here's an, So it happened in California. So when they passed SB 277, even though it didn't uh, uh, implement immediately, some people said we have to get out of here now. So uh they were down. This is a, a citation from uh, 2019, and they were down 34,000 that year. It was 8,000 the year that the SB 277 passed. In the last year, this is from April 11, 2022, they were down 110,000, 
and the previous year, 161,000. So wow. there's lots of problems in California, but yeah, part of it. Okay. So then, uh, when California improperly revoked non-medical exemptions, the rate was only 2.5%. Exempting families are so committed to the choice, they will relocate to another state to avoid vaccination. Here's an article from SFGate that's citing a, a, another article from Idaho. Some California parents who moved to Idaho to avoid vaccinating their children are calling themselves refugees, according to an Idaho statesman investigation. The story discusses how Idaho became a hotspot for anti-vax Californians. So, the, I mean, clearly, if you'll if you'll move, then you're not going to vaccinate your kids. So did EHB 1638 work? Did families abandon their exemptions and resume or begin vaccinating only if they absolutely had to? The majority left the schools and appear to be staying out there. And because the reports were delayed to later in the year for 20, 2020 through 22, one dose MMR who were previously out of compliance were shifted to complete. That gave the appearance of EHB working, which is what they wanted to show. Mm -hmm. And then uh, this is why the paper can only say associated. It, it can't say even correlated mm -hmm. or causal, of course. Mm -hmm. So the, the out of compliance is already climbing, complete decline this year with the normal report dates. Eliminating exemptions does not create new vaccinators. It results in children leaving the schools. Beautiful. So, well done. All right. So then Hotez. So this is a, a cover <laughs> slide from my uh, from my talk and I, it's on rumble and it's on my sub stack. Yeah. And go, go to his sub stack and watch. And he, he lays all this out really well. I go step by step, but this thing is such a, such a turd. I can't even, I can only hit the high points in that video. So yeah. of course, Hotez is a MD PhD. And then he's uh, received the scientific achievement award from the American medical association, which is, uh, for being the best vaccinator in the country. And, and then, he, uh, he's never brought a product to market. Yeah, I'm not sure about no. that. But oh, I, I he's a multimillionaire paid by so many, paid by some Chinese pharmaceutical companies oh too. Gosh. And he's never had a successful product. Yeah. Well, he's got a Nobel Prize nomination. So then, uh, so what I ask in my talk is that people are confused that a Nobel Prize nominated AMA Scientific Achievement Award recipient would be reluctant to engage in a debate and promote his pro-vax position. So then a review of one of his most dis widely distributed studies could be instructive. So he had this paper that we were discussing, the state of the anti-vaccine movement in the United States, a focused examination of non-medical exemptions in states and counties. Now, uh, so the, 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 what, they, what the media keyed on was these high exemption rate counties. So you had more than a quarter of kindergartners in Camas County, Idaho, lack at least some vaccinations because their parents have opted for non-medical exemptions. Idaho has eight of the top 10 counties in the country. And then this is a quote from Dr. Hotez. What we are seeing is pockets of intense anti-vaccine activity, said Hotez, a pediatrician and dean. Then what happened was the anti-vaccine groups were strong, be, uh, became very well organized and became well funded. So now you've got these schools with 20, 30, 40 percent of kids not vaccinated. But in the same article, it says less than one percent of toddlers have never been vaccinated. Well, that doesn't sound right. So then I did the follow-up. Dr. Hotez is complaining someone needs to follow up. So I did that. So when you search and you look at uh, the, the, the county, then there is no development at, you can't find the largest city by population, Fairfield. And when you zoom in, Fairfield is a, a five by nine block neighborhood. There's one school and that one school has one elementary class. And during the stu study year, that kindergarten had 15 students 
So Camas County's 26.67% was only four children. And then Camas County is the 43rd of uh, 44 least populated counties in Idaho. So then uh, science is supposed to be data and con does the data support a conclusion? So the data is that Camas and other counties have high percentage ex exemption rates. And then one, uh, one conclusion could be that measuring 15 kindergarten students by percentage where each adds 6.66% creates high rates and that Idaho has eight of the 10 highest exemption counties because it has low population density and small kindergarten cohorts. Now, somehow Dr. Hotez's conclusion to the same data was that the well-funded, highly organized anti-vaccine movement has reached its tentacles into Camas County to deceive the parents of these four children to use an exemption. <laughs> Anti-vax movement is canvassing Idaho to make it the state with the most high exemption counties in the country. This nefarious group has turned Idaho into a hotspot of anti-vaccine sentiment. Now, Dr. Hotez represents his paper as if first they found states, uh, uh, counties and states with anti-vaccine activity and then followed up and confirmed that, oh yeah, the rates are low, but uh, there's no documentation of any anti-vaccine activity and there's no documentation of any financing. No. So then uh, what Dr. So in, Dr. Hotez is interpreting the high exemption rate itself as evidence of anti-vaccine activity. Dr. Hotez does not address the possibility that using percentage measurement in these small cohorts is perhaps a possible cause. Now, this is a peer-reviewed paper published in PLOS. This is what, uh, when uh, uh, people are like, wow, I, I, I didn't realize it was that easy. So is this Nobel Prize or AMA scientific award quality research? So the findings review and people need to watch the whole movie. So the big, the key, the high points were is that that highest exemption county, the the 26.67% was four of 15 students. Then it, he was complaining that Maricopa County has 2,947 non-medical exemptions, but they have 55,000 kindergartners. That's one of the largest counties in the country over 4 million population. Then they used a trick for trying to mess, trying to make that non-medical exemptions look bigger. He tried to blame the Disney measles outbreak uh, on, on uh, California school policy, but the 71% the of the cases were in adults, 30% of the cases were vaccinated. It's in a theme park that doesn't follow California school law. And then there was no evaluation for him to try to find another reason for why the exemption rate could be going up. So in my video, I go, I talk about the fact that the, you know, the schedule is being expanded all of the time. It's unrealistic to expect that there's an unlimited number of jabs parents are going to be happy with. And then uh, also the, uh, the effect that reactions have on families. If your mm -hmm. child, you know, if your child goes to the ER as a result of his routine vaccinations, you're going to be hesitant to repeat it for sure. Those that's called medical due diligence. Yes. You know, they call hesitant. I call met doing your medical due well, diligence. Yeah. yeah. So then <laughs> part of it was, is that, you know, is that how can this pass peer review? So that while for, so nobody thought or said, Dr. Hotez, well, it, technically four is 26.670%. How do you think it supports anti-vaccine anti activity and not measuring 15 kids by percentage? How does 400 non-medical exempt students in counties ranging from 500,000 to four and a half million population demonstrate that? And uh, uh, if less than one and a half children have zero vaccines, how are exemption rates higher than that? And then the next thing is that, what do you have to know to put a paper like this to submit it? You have to know that it's not going to be challenged in peer review. 
you have to know it's not going to be challenged by the publishing agency and you have to know it will not be challenged by the reporting press so that what is the implication if this paper is representative of the standard of quality of other pro-vaccine studies and as we just looked at that ehb 1638 this yeah. is exactly example of that exactly and the conclusion in my video is that you know is this the reason that dr hotez was it doesn't want to debate because he'd have to admit all of these failures mm -hmm. now so the stuff i couldn't cover in this and the way that there this the way that this study was structured like the ehb one is what you leave out and what you emphasize so in the summary points there's not a single citation of a percentage rate of anything in the summary points on the first page so then on the second page, you finally get a statistic. According to the 2015 National Immunization Survey, only 72% of children aged 19 to 35 months in the United States were fully vaccinated per guidelines from the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice. Due to parental concerns about vaccine safety and efficacy, many families choose to opt out their children from vaccinations required for school by obtaining non-medical exemptions based on religious or philosophical belief. In 2016, 18 states permitted uh, NMEs and a detailed analysis, analysis of NMEs within the 18 states reveal that several counties are, are at risk. So if you were just going to read that, you would assume that the the reason it's at 72 is because of exemptions. Right. The, the, you, have, you have that. Right. Percent, yeah. That false yep. logic. I mean, it's really brilliant, evil writing, just great uh, wordsmithing here. Yeah. You go, right from, you go people. from the 72% to exemptions. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and if you're not a wonk like me, you don't know what the NIS is. And then if you're a wonk like me, you know that the NIS is for 19 to 35 month children who aren't in school and they don't have exemptions. And then you know that fully vaccinated is a seven vaccine series. So that means that, that the combined seven vaccine series is called a 4-3-1-1-3-3-1-4. So in order to be in that 72%, you have to have all of these. You have to have four DTAP, three polio, one MMR, uh, uh, three or four Hib, depending on product, three hepatitis B, one dose of chickenpox and four doses of PCV. So that is where the 28% noncompliance comes from. If you're but missing if you just look, one of those in this 19 to yes. 35 month old category, you're considered non-vaccinated. I mean, it's just so deceptive. It's just, it's absolutely absurd. And this is the kind of nonsense, the pulling the wool over your eyes that, yeah, I mean, it's just so well, and it's it's intentional. This is intentional, deceptive. It behavior. has to be intentional. No, yeah, these people know better. So then, but that so then when you look at it, so this is the table of it, and it compares 2011 to 2015. And if you go to the far right where the highlights are, and for the listeners in 2015, 95 percent of these kids had three doses of DTAP. 93.7 of these kids had three polio. 91.9 of these kids had two MMR, 94.3 had the primary series of their Hib, 92.6 had the Hep B, 91.8 had the varicella, 93.3 had the PCV, 80 and 85 have the Hep A, which is food poisoning. But anyway, so that shows, you know, how do you and and the pro and the what so because the pediatric market was saturated in the 90s they have to find some way to make exorbitantly high vaccination rates look bad. Mm -hmm. So they put that in there now. And, and, and if you don't, if you don't know that you can't trust these people, you would read that and you'd think, Oh my gosh, we've only got 
72 yeah. percent vaccination rate this yeah. is terrible kids are going to die so then in the and then on the next so then in the box below that uh the rise of the non-medical exemptions no numbers just upward trend in 12 of the 18 states that offer it and there are they're just fractional percentage increases yeah and then the next then then you have the camas county so when i go through and show this then you end up with all of these uh uh, there's so many things wrong with it. So in my corrections, now, one of them was, is that on this, uh, the, you know, so you have all of these graphs with all these lines going up and down. And if you, again, if you're not, know, know what you're looking at, you don't realize that we're talking about a graph where the top of it is 5%. It's not, that's not a 50%. That's zero to 6% is the, the range of the graph. And then there's no, uh, no evaluation whatsoever about the fact that the schedule's been growing and growing and growing, and you can't compare a states with different uh, requirements. And then the heat map, they have a heat map of the exemption use. And so I put on there the population density map of Idaho, and they overlay each other perfectly. So that <laughs> the you have the same that you have matched. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the way this thing is constructed, the language is used, uh, they don't show the count when they, you know, on the on the uh, counties where they have the high rates of uh, or the large mm -hmm. numbers, they don't show what the actual county population is. When you put that in, suddenly these aren't terrifying situations. You know, um, and Carl, we're getting kind of uh, close to the sure, end sure. here. Um, I'll, I'll just let you go ahead. Why don't you show your your summary slide? Well, I'll, your yeah, I'll just I'll go through. So, uh, you know what they did. So then the next thing was and. Uh, uh, I think next time I'll screen share so I can zoom in. So what they did was they were they were using a, what's called a Spearman correlation. So they're trying to show that the that the the NME has a greater impact, and and that so this is just like and when you're saying the, NME, you're not saying enemy. You're saying N for non medical, non -medical exemption. exemption NME. So, okay. So on this chart here, they've got Colorado down there below ninety percent. Well, Colorado's exemption rate's only three point four, so yeah. it's impossible for that dot to be down there. And, and what they did was they were doing like Washington was doing, which was to combine the exemption with out of compliance yeah. and then citing that as complete. So, uh, and, and, and the whole, this exercise here is supposed to show what exactly does non-medical exemption do to the vaccination rate? Well, that's pretty simple because if you have an exemption, you're not vaccinated. And if you don't, you are. So you just take the non-medical exemption rate, subtract it from 100. So they go through this really complicated exercise in order to, A, look sciencey uh, or science-like activities, as James Lyons Weiler would call it. Yeah, yeah. And B, so that they can say, they can find some justification for saying that the impact is greater than, there is no magical process whereby an exemption rate can have a greater effect than its nominal value. And then the uh, then the, the hotspot, 400 students, that was just something they brought out arbitrarily. And then on the on the, the last page, when they're pulling this together, they were saying that the measles epidemic from 2014-15 originating in the Disneyland theme park. Now, epidemic is a, is an actual scientific term. So I contrast this uh, hotspot is not a medical term. There is no criteria, but epidemic has a real live definition which is 400 per 100,000 in the population. Now, the Disney's Disney measles outbreak 
was less than 150 in a park with 80,000 people in a country with 330 million. So it yeah. clearly did not qualify. Clearly as an not epidemic. an epidemic. Yeah. And then the, uh, you know, and then there's just all of the things they did not address in terms of trying to determine why would a family use an exemption besides being, uh, uh, tricked by the anti-vaxxers right. so right. The, and then the, just the idea that if only two per, if less than one and a half percent of kids have zero then the anti-vaxxers are doing a terrible job yeah because 98.5 percent of kids are starting down the vaccine path and my premise is that they experience an injury and then they seek out the anti-vaccine and then yeah. they're validated because it's like the medical profession is saying uh we don't know what happened but we do know it's not the vaccine yeah, exactly, Carl. Well, this has been a fantastic presentation here. I just love your work. And you know, it. Um, it, it is a lot of fiddly bits, but they're lying yeah. to us. They're lying to the legislators. They're lying to everybody for a reason, because they, you know, like you said, they want to move into the adult population. Um, and it's really terrifying because they they want pre cradle to grave vaccination and the pharmaceutical industry is just drooling over how many vaccine products they can sell because once they get them on the schedule and they get the funding, the government to do all of the work of mandating and marketing and distributing and storing these billion dollar products that end up under liability shields so they didn't even have to pay if these products damage you. And we're moving now into a world where they want all the shots to do be mRNA. And what we have to shift outside of this horrific monster that has been created by the medical pharmaceutical industry is shift over from measuring product uptake and begin measuring health outcomes, full health outcomes, such as Dr. Paul Thomas beautifully did with a study of his children and that have been done in some other independent studies. And we have to begin investing in understanding what makes somebody resilient to infection, which we already know, sanitation, good, you know, nutrition, nutrition all of that yep. sort of, and we need safe and effective, I hate that term anymore, but early treatment protocols, such as nutrient therapies, oxidative therapies, not using um, anti-pyretics uh, like um, acetaminophen, like, yeah, like have a fever. which extend the length of illness, all of that stuff is so important. And then, you know, some safe, long existing um, drugs, perhaps like the semi-natural ivermectin, which is a byproduct of a fermented soil bacteria, which seems to, you know, there's just so much that we could do. To me, the end of the vaccine era and the pharmaceutical company knows it is, is coming. They've overreached. They've lied so much. Nobody is trusting them. You and I don't want anybody to die of infectious disease, but we don't want everybody's health undermined by these products that are causing so much chronic illness. It's just got to stop. Um, you know, before we well, go, we've you, got, go ahead. Look, if you look at it this way, here's, here's the problem is that if you've got a company, Globo, right? And so the, uh, so the, the uh, uh, you got the chairman of the board, and then somebody comes in and says, well, I got, I got, I got good news and I got bad news. And he says, well, give me the bad news first. Well, our, uh, our medications give, uh, uh, give people, uh, hyperactivity disorder. 
Uh, yeah. Okay. What's the good news? Well, we also sell medications to treat hyperactivity disorder. Oh, so, that, you know, you, know, you are so you, right. Yeah. That, is that you have this, when you have this much, uh, uh, you know, when you've got these groups, what is it? BlackRock won't, owns it. I mean, if you're yeah. making money on both sides of the end, you don't care. You don't uh, care. It's, which, I mean, yeah. and, and it, we, at least from a, from an economic standpoint. So that's why this needs to be a grassroots movement. We just need to quit feeding the monster, quit buying their products. I want to tell listeners, Carl, but a couple events coming up in the Pacific Northwest region. So in Oregon, I believe there's still tickets available. It's going to be this Saturday, June 25th. The wise event is coming and they, they are going to have speakers uh, like Tricia Lindsay, attorney at law, Daniel Sheehan, another attorney, attorney, the wonderful Catherine Austin Fitz, Amy wow. Bone from Perk, um, Dr. Mark McDonald, psychiatrist. Um, so anyway, fabulous event there. So I, um, if you can get there, it's the Oregon chapter of Children's Health Defense, or.childrenshealthdefense.org. And I'll just tell you um, about another, there's something coming up. Where did it go? I just want to give a, a shout out to Silent Majority Foundation. Mm, it's mm -hmm. silentmajorityfoundation.org. Check them out. A great law firm. It's a nonprofit law firm doing amazing work. Check them out. Donate. They've got some events coming up. So follow them, join them. They've got a, um, you know, just see, uh, see about what you can do because we've got to push this in the right direction. And it's all up to us. Don't forget to go to Carl Kanthak uh, Substacks page. Oh, and one more exciting thing, Carl. The um, CHD National has, has announced that their big annual conference is going to be November 3rd through the 5th in Savannah, Georgia. And oh my goodness, it's looking so fantastic. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is going to show up. So it'll be pretty exciting. I hope you can come out this way, Carl. I'd love to see you. All right. Send me, in the, send me the info. I will. I will. Thank you so much. And I always appreciate being on your program. Thank you, Carl. Thanks yeah. for all you do. Uh, I've been listening to an informed life radio on 1150 KKNW. Okay. <laughs> uh, everybody have a great weekend and I'll see you next time too. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Brad Dacus, president and founder of the Pacific Justice Institute. For over 25 years, PGI's mission has been to defend religious freedom, parental rights, and the sanctity of human life. PJI has protected patients from being taken off life support and stood up for citizens around the country facing job loss for medical decisions that should be left between them and their doctor. For free legal representation and resources, visit PJI.org. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com.